so the topic of this talk is familiar homeostasis and negotiation of children's eating and physical activity. And I will mainly talk about an analysis of intergenerational conversation in low-income US families, but I will also talk about some studies I published on uh, Swedish families with multicultural background and on stress. So I'm interested in this field because I do believe that influences in childhood matter. And some studies have indeed shown that patterns of eating from the childhood may persist into adulthood. And how come? Well, family members influence children's eating practices directly through the food they serve and indirectly through behavior models and social norms. However, there is one aspect that has been overlooked, and it's as that simple as the grandparents. And the grandparents have been cited in a systematic review by parents uh, as barriers for healthy eating practices at home. Uh, and that's significant because uh, in uh, almost one-third of UK, uh, one-quarter of US families, uh, parents still rely on grandparents for informal care. So grandparents having disappeared in the modern family, they're still there. And informal child care, as for example care provided by grandparents, has, has been linked in cross-sectional studies to child overweight in the US and in the UK and in China as well. Uh, on the other hand, we have shown in our studies that support from grandparents has been associated with lower weight in children. So the role of grandparents is complex, but it's important, and it's very special. Uh, so while child obesity is a relatively recent public concern, critiques or ideas about grandparental practices and that are not new. And I really love this quote that was actually provided um, by a historian here in Oxford. And the quote is uh, from 1749, and it says, it may serve to convince most nurses, aunts, grandmothers, how much they have hitherto been in the wrong, what mischief to children, and the multitudes are destroyed or spoiled, whereby cramming them with cakes, sweetmeats, this is, you know, we have it years ago. Things they fold their blood, clone their vessels, hold their appetite, and we every faculty of their bodies. By copyright and indulging them uh, to the perversion of their naturally good temper till they become quite fraught and imbecile. Mm? So everybody would agree that there may be some intergenerational differences in feeding. So grandparents, in comparison with parents, offer a wider selection of healthy foods. They cook more often, and they also use food as an educational and emotional tool. But what researchers haven't looked into, and that's what interested me, how do parents and grandparents negotiate those differences in families on everyday basis? What are the conversations? How do they compromise. So that's why I set up the grandparents study, and that was during my postdoctoral time in US, in Oregon. 
and we have been lucky to publish a couple of papers from this study already. So the methods and the scrap in detail in those papers. And the first author is coming. <laughs> uh, so the families were recruited from the Eugenia Springfield Metropolitan Area in Oregon, US, in 2011. And the participants were recruited through advertisement published in the job seekers and volunteers sections of Craigslist. And Craigslist, for those who don't know, is the most widely used classified advertisement website in the US. And also in the Register Guard, which is the main local newspaper. And we did so because we really wanted to interview family, families from low income no, population. Because usually in studies like this, those who want to participate are well-educated mothers. And we wanted to from that. So the recruitment advertisement specified the study inclusion criteria, which was to have a child between three to five years old, because I was very interested in the preschool age, and also had some contact with grandparents. And we specified that to be at least uh, twice a month. Uh, and some advertisement target targeted parents and some targeted grandparents. And I have to say it was a lovely study to, to do. To transcribe was really a lot of fun. And it, but, but specifically to recruit to the study was really easy. Now I have students doing a similar study in Sweden as we speak. And it's very easy to recruit families because parents and grandparents really would like to talk about their children. So that's good. <laughs> So we interviewed 49 family members, 22 were parents, 27 were grandparents, 70 were women, 60 with overweight and obesity. Uh, because I'm obesity researcher, I was interested in that part from 16 families of children aged three to five. Uh, half of the mothers, more than half had overweight or obesity. And half of the parents, and more than half the grandparents were unemployed. And 63% of the parents and almost half of the grandparents reported an annual household income below 25,000, which is low. Seven of 16 families consisted of a single parent with some responsibility for the child, five single mothers and two single fathers. <coughs> and we interviewed each family member separately. So we asked the same question, but to cross-validate interviews. And the interviews were videotaped, transcribed, and analyzed qualitatively. So here are some results. In the first paper, we examined generational differences between parents and grandparents' perceptions of their preschoolers' body size. And surprisingly, we found that neither parents or no grandparents differed when it comes to identifying excess body weight in preschool age children. So they were not especially good at that. And even when they did recognize that the preschooler was overweight, they rarely interviewed. So for us, the main message, there were no differences between parents and grandparents in that aspect. In the second paper, we set out to investigate the processes underlying decision-making about preschoolers' feeding and physical activity. And what we found is that differences, we found differences in perceived caretaking roles. So parents, they regulate children's food consumption and set feeding rules by which grandparents have to abide. 
and grandparents use indulgent feeding to introduce a sense of fun and create a closer bond with the child. As it says here, uh, house rules and gambling papa, our virtual men will be continuously spoiled 24 7 at our place. It's really easy to find on internet those kind of signs. It will just say something about the grandparental role. So here's an example from Family 7. The mother says, as far as I'm concerned, I'm the influence that I am, and I parent as I do. And then my daughter has a grandma. Her grandma gave her a fireball on her way here. I don't do that, but she did. It's an energy drink for those who don't know. And her mother says, the grandmother, if my granddaughter is really insistent on a certain thing, I'll get it for her. I don't figure it's going to hurt her too bad. We try and throw the button away before my daughter gets home. If she finds it, she gives me the look, and then we are okay. I claim grandmother privileges. <laughs> so what about familiar roles and physical activity? Well, family members said that they enjoyed sharing certain activities such as gardening or television with their preschoolers, but they did not speak about particular activity or sets of activities as defining parental or grandparental roles. So both generations of caretakers said that preschool-age children are naturally inclined towards physically active play, suggesting that parents and grandparents perceive exercise as a dimension in comparison to feeding that does not implicate defined family roles and requires less caretaking. And these are studies from Australia and um, Canada showing the same results regarding how, how parents perceive their children being physically active. Because in fact, when we measure physical activity, we see that children at that age already are not physically active as we think they are. So while food is invested with considerable sociocultural and affective meaning in relation to care, physical activities do not carry similar caretaking meaning. So what we found is that differences in practices are negotiated through dynamics of grandparental compliance and parental compromise. We have the negotiation, the decision-making um, process. So grandparents identify parents as the ultimate authority over the child's diet. Parents claim that form of respect actively early on in child's life. So grandparents continue to engage in minor subversion to, of feeding rules. <coughs> and parents express an understanding of grandparents' subversion of the parental feeding rule as long as grandparents also demonstrated over-respect. You see that kind of the game? So here we have an example. This is family one. The grandmother says, we do tell my granddaughter what my what, what my daughter, what my granddaughter has eaten that day, and I think there have been some couple of times where my daughter had said something and will say, okay, you know, I'm not going to do anything against her wishes. And this is what her daughter, the mother, says. I know they sneak things, and I can't be there all day, every day. So interviewer asks, so what do you do? Well, I roll my eyes when I tell them that I don't appreciate that, but in the end, they are the ones watching my daughter, and I trust that. They raised me and I survived. It's really fun to interview two people with the same thing. Um, 
So decision making is guided by the notion of a balanced lifestyle and negotiated through familiar homeless tasks. So within each family, family, parents and grandparents describe adjusting their feeding practices in relation to one another. So the, the feeding practices were informed by notion of the balanced lifestyle, with family members citing healthy feeding as offsetting unhealthy feeling. Nobody was, wanted to be too healthy, nobody wanted to be too unhealthy. So balanced lifestyle practices were negotiated with familiar homeostasis. So that's mating of balance between parents and grandparents' care dynamics. So unhealthy and healthy practices were used to enact differences between parental and grandparental caretaking roles. Oh, how does it look like? Uh, oh, that's not. So, family members in our study also spoke of offsetting their children's sedentary activities with physical activities, suggesting that screen based activity is acceptable as long as the child also engages in sports or active play. So, in the interviews, parents and grandparents constructed their practices in relational reference to other, other caretakers in the family. But then we went interested. what about beverages? We wanted to look specifically at beverages. So yes, we found that processes behind negotiation of eating and practices endorsed by family members are interrelated. But that's the same applying to beverages. And we were interested because beverages are often overlooked when people and sometimes researchers talk about food habits. But research has shown that there is strong connection between especially sweetened beverages and child obesity. So we aim to identify intergenerational similarities and differences and consider the potential impact uh, that such differences might have on beverage consumption habits. And that paper is under review in Appetite. So what we found is that mothers and grandmothers agree in fact, about the hierarchy of healthiness between and within beverages. However, Jews occupies an ambivalent position. Mothers and grandmothers balance between restricting sugar-sweetened beverages and using these beverages as treats. And those who provide sugar drinks as treats usually link these drinks with special occasions. However, the definition of special occasion is variable between family and individuals, and even between individuals' interviews. So, balancing dynamics may be as applicable to beverages as they are to foods. So when mothers and grandmothers use soda, juice, and juice drinks as treats, they do so within a wider dynamics of balancing practices, and within two intersecting domains, the hierarchy of beverages, including the still ambivalent status of juice as healthy or unhealthy, and the definition of special occasion. So by the way, the, my students who do their grandparent study in Sweden now, I really want them to ask what is the special occasion. I'm very interested in the concept of what is a special occasion. So we also found two modifying factors. The first factor was time spent. So if a family member spends more time with a child, she or he acts as, as like parent. However, less time 
accident like a grandparent. And he was, and the other was living babysitting arrangement. And here we have two examples. Father from family four. He says, it's changed a lot since we cohabited. She used to be a less stringent to our rules and where we were because well, I'm grandma, so I can spoil them. And family number one, the grandfather, he, he says, it's her kid, but it's like I told my daughter, when you drop her off and you're at work, she's my kid, and she'll eat the way I want her to eat. And another example, example uh, family number 11, the mother. When we live with my mother, my mom has always been really respectful. If your mom said no, then your mom said no. But now, that my daughter just go to visit on the weekends, I trust to just let them do whatever since it's grandma time. And her mother explains, with grandma, as it's with me, you're allowed to get away with stuff. Since I do only have her for a night, once a week, it's fun to spoil her. What we are now interested in is the socioeconomic dimension of those relations. And we found, this is, this is something that we are working on now, is that, that we see an intersection between familiar goals, notions of balance, and structural socioeconomic factors that put further pressure on, the, on these dynamics. So the practices seem to intersect with factors such as relying on food stamps, many families in our sample do, most families I would say, having limited space for children to play or engage in physical activity, needing grandparental support to due to affordable childcare and so on. And I will show you some of the examples. This is what we are working on now. So I as an interviewer I asked, so in general, do you think that it was easier or more difficult to be a parent as you were at that time compared to how grandparents have it now? And the grandmother from family one responds, I think it was easier, less stress, that stress of being able to provide and still spend the quality time that you need without having a kid that just go going to run away and be on the streets. I think that stress is much greater now than it ever was. And here's mother from family three who was described. My parents reflect on her childhood. My parents just kind of got lazy and tired because they were working full time. So I think that was, well, and my mom got sick when I was in high school, so she was really tired. And then in the later interview, she reflects about her own time you know, as being a mother. And she says, we, we've been, and this is like halfway through the interview, half, 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 half time, 30 minutes later, she says, we've been really sick this year for some reason. <coughs> we having call after call, so it's like a lot, they're low energy, so that's why he's a little chubbier than normal even, because he just, we're all really tired. And I ask as an interviewer, is there anything that you'd like to do with your grandchild or your child that you don't do today? And there is this grandmother from Family Five who responds, take a vacation. I learned to take a vacation with them. I mean, I did it with the granddaughter, but she was a year old, so she doesn't remember that. I think that being unemployed, <coughs> our money is, 
Well, I'm very strict about bills first, fun later. Fun that costs money later. I would like to do more weekend getaways and stuff with them. And I asked, what is the biggest challenge? And mother five, uh, mother from family seven response. I think that the biggest challenge is that we are strapped for time and because of money. Saying from a single mom might seem strange, but I just think that it would be easier to have a better lifestyle, to eat better, to be more active, or all that, if we work 30 hours instead of 40 hours a week. I think it is the smallest reduction that in that stress and in that amount of time. I just think it would do wonders for our families. I guess one of the challenges of the times is income level because but cheap money, cheap food is fattening food. Recreations cost money. It's costing money. And here's a grandmother from family four who reflects about her childhood. And she says, my mom, more than my dad, came from poverty. It was like you feed people for as cheap as you can feed people. Then when there is little extra money, there is a treat. I think that's the rule, that they use food as a reward, which is a big no-no in my family. If you do that, then we can have an ice cream. We don't do that in my house. And there's this intergenerational transmission. So here's the grandmother from family four who uh, reflects. Uh, and my son has the same struggles uh, I did being single because those parents got divorced. Being single is hard and I think that being married is going to be easier than being single when you have kids. I don't think it is, well, yes, the world is different but people are still the same. By the way, it was so interesting to interview grandparents. Some of them were 70, 80 years old to kind of get their perspective on life. And they usually make those reflective statements about you know, what they learn through life. It was very rewarding as a researcher to do that. And my grand grandmother from family 12 says, I work in a middle. When you got kids wanting money to do things and you didn't have it, that was probably the hardest thing. And there were other things that just came up in the interviews, like mother from family farming, when you sit the interview then for hours, you hear a lot of stuff. Like this, my dad is a retired professional boxer, and then she goes and describes, there was a severe domestic violence in my home when I was growing up. Substance abuse, alcohol abuse, a lot of stuff that is really hard for kids to deal with. So it's not a coincidence that the work I do and that I'm really aware of the decision I make as a parent. So one might think, what are the mechanisms uh, behind family and background and stress? So now we go back to the theory. And there have been a lot of research, these are uh, systematic reviews on the subject, showing that the higher maternal stress and depression, the higher child obesity. And these studies have been prospective and longitudinal. And also, the higher maternal stress and depression the higher non-responsive feeding, meaning parents were restricting too much, pressuring too much. And also higher maternal stress and depression and lower responsiveness to children's feeding cues. That is very important in early childhood. However, and this is the last paper I'm going to mention, 
It's something that we were very interested in is the sense of coherence. And I don't know how many of you are aware with the concept. It's interesting because it stems from a positive psychology approach, cellulogenesis, and it emphasizes protective factors that enable people to stay healthy. So it describes an individual positive orientation toward her or his capacities, environment, future, and life. And it comprises of intergenerational dimension, comprehensibility, manageability, and meaningfulness. Have any of you heard about the concept of a sense of coherence? No. It's quite popular in some countries. There is a lot of picture in Scandinavia, in Nordic countries, the concept comes from US and from Anton, uh, Aaron Antonovsky, who was an Israeli researcher. So basically what he, I think it's interesting story behind the concept because he kind of came to this theoretical formulation after interviewing women who, uh, with experience of being in concentration camps. And he tried to understand what made people to survive very harsh conditions and actually thrive. And he found these three dimensions, comprehensibility, manageability, and meaningfulness. So comprehensibility is the sense of one's own life as ordered and understandable. Manageability is the perception of available resources and skills to manage stressors. And meaningfulness is the overall sense that life is filled with meaning and purpose. And there has been a lot of study on, uh, on SOC, and it has been associated with the ability to cope with stress. So therefore, it's often referred as a measure of resilience to stress. So we were interested in SOC and parental feeding, um, adjusting for a lot of characteristics that we had variables on, and we used for that a sample recruited through Swedish Potential Registry. <coughs> so we had 56 mothers, uh, 24 of them were of foreign origin, uh, and they were representing uh, 60 countries. And they came from the third largest cities within Malmö, that is a very multicultural town. Uh, and the children were on average 4.5 uh, years old, half old girls, starting with overweight obesity, which is kind of the prevalence in Sweden. So this is what we found. So a big jump to quantitative <laughs> type of analysis. So what we found, this is these are results for, from a structural equation modeling. I know if you've ever worked with that, it's a very interesting and very rewarding statistical uh, application. What we found, we look at the correlation adjusting for everything. And what we found that SOC influence, was influenced by the mother's characteristics. Foreign background was level of education and BMI. So what you see that the sense of coherence was lower for mothers with foreign background minus 0.44, it was lower, let's see if that works, um, yeah. It was higher with mother's education and lower with mother's BMI. And we didn't see any difference, any association between SOC and the child's characteristics, such as gender, age, or BMI. 
And then we are interested in the links between sock and feeding. And we found that uh, sense of coherence had a negative di uh, direct effect of, of on restriction and pressure to eat. So here we have the restriction and here we have the pressure to eat. So uh, the higher, the better sense of coherence, the lower uh, restriction or pressure to eat uh, uh, towards children. And also, this is very interesting, we saw that SOC had an indirect effect on restriction via concern. So that was the key factor. If the parents were concerned, obviously they restricted more. If they were not, they didn't. So the, the cognitive perception was very important. And this one was adjusted for all, all factors, mothers and uh, characteristics. And this has been also very recently published last month. So summing up, we found significant association between SOC and controlling feeding practices. SOC was influenced by the mother's characteristics. It increased with Swedish background and higher le level of education. And that has been shown in other studies. It, it's quite clear pattern that the higher education, the higher sense of coherence. Uh, and actually what we haven't seen here, but in other studies, the higher age the better sense of coherence. So basically you become more pleased with your life once you get older and can understand more, can accept more. Uh, and decrease with high BMI. And mothers who had a higher SOC were less likely to engage in the often ineffective strategies of pressuring or uh, restrictive feeding. So now I have three more slides. And and then we have time for questions. So the implications are that as mothers of lower CS or foreign origin were more likely to have a lower sense of coherence, child obesity programs should address the economic and structural barriers that these parents face in building resilience and stress. And it suggests that chronic stress may mediate the relationship between socioeconomic hardship and parental and grandparent feeding practices. So parents of young children experience increased stress levels. And this is actually a very neat study showing that in families with small children, the stress increases with every child, basically, until, well, uh, for the first four or five years. It's not wonder that the average uh, age for divorce, at least in Sweden, is seven years into your marriage. It's just, it's so much to take in. So, uh, but financial, emotional, and practical support from extended families such as grandparents may help uh, parents to manage everyday stressors and thus enable them to make better feeding choices. So this was, again, the study we published showing that social support may mediate the stress and the link between parents and parents' situation and children's uh, health conditions. So, take a home message in three lines. So, we found that familiar decision making about food and physical activity is informed by ideas of what constitutes of a, a balanced lifestyle. We, we have found that family members do adjust the practices in relation to each other. Uh, therefore, considering the process of familiar homeostasis and including wider familiar context 
it's critical in uh, family-based interventions or even policy. And finally, structural and socioeconomic factors seems to put further pressure on these dynamics. And of course, I'd like to ask, uh, thank, thank Karine uh, for incredible contribution to this study. I think it's, it's very rewarding to have somebody not involved in the data collection who actually have time and uh, you know flexibility uh, to do the coding <laughs> and to discuss everything because during those discussions we came up with 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 these uh, findings and of course many other who were included as well but again that was a great thing. So now time paper is open for the questions. Thank you. <laughs>